the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Uh, yes, here we are once again, and the uh, whole family is back together again. We've got Mr. Jarrell Martin back from two solid weeks in the... French Riviera, was it? I, I never can keep track between the Caribbean cruises, the Alaskan cruises, the Italian Riviera. I mean, you know, you're a world traveler, uh, such as it is. It's, it's difficult to keep track. At any rate, Jarrell, our engineer, is uh, back in his uh, normal location and uh, looking sharp. So we're going to lead off with another program, just because we're all back together again, right? <laughs> We've got... Um, Bob Zadek, who's going to join us a little bit later on in tonight's program, do a little bit of Monday morning quarterbacking on this Tuesday, talk specifically about the aftermath of the Helsinki Accords between the U.S. and Russia. Some of it went well. Other parts of it, as you're well aware, did not go so well. We'll get Bob Zadek's take on it all. Bob, of course, is a nationally syndicated conservative talk show host and book author. And uh, we'll get to that conversation coming up a little bit later on in this first hour. The issue of First Amendment rights seems to make it to the news, perhaps more often than we'd really like. We know certainly that there have been a lot of challenges to our First Amendment rights, specifically as it relates to freedom of speech in recent years. And... I think it's important to be, what's the old saying, forewarned is to be forearmed. I think it's important to understand precisely what your rights are under the law, especially so since there may be authorities that could range from the teacher or the principal at your child's school to police that you may run into in the street to others in positions of authority that do not understand the Constitution and will spout off half-truths and innuendos, and you're largely defenseless unless you understand what constitutional rights you really have, or better put, what God-given rights you have that the Constitution protects. Let's get a look at it with Brad Dake, his constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And, Counselor, one of the arenas we certainly know when it comes to freedom of speech that has um, seen some challenges in recent years has been the whole matter of people being able to speak their their peace, speak their mind in a public arena when it comes to evangelism. Walk us through, if you would, some of the the bigger primary issues related to this, what the problems are, and maybe you can take a moment or two to sort of give us a, a thumbnail sketch, the short Reader's Digest version of what our fundamental First Amendment rights are when it comes to publicly sharing our faith. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, the good news, Craig, is that our First Amendment free speech clause uh, is still alive and well. Courts still respect it. 
and specifically, uh, they applied in a number of ways. Uh, uh, for example, um, individuals have a, a basic right to be able to uh, express themselves, to, to speak, um, and to preach, for that matter, uh, on public sidewalks, in public parks, uh, in, in places like that that are, are known for being traditional public forums. And, uh, in fact, people who were demonstrating in front of the Supreme Court building in the uh, interesting case uh, that happened um, not that long ago, the Grace case, the Supreme Court ruled and said, you know what, these people have a right to demonstrate in front of the sidewalk in front of our, our building. This area here in front of it is, is, is uh, known for free speech. So the general rule is there's tremendous freedom and opportunities, and there's, there's some restrictions like, you know, if it's a narrow passage, you know, very, very narrow sidewalk, you can't block people from uh, walking back and forth from the sidewalk and, and, and passing you. Uh, there's also, you know, potential noise restrictions that can be applied that uh, may involve uh, certain decimal levels, but they can't discriminate against, you know, one person who, because they don't like the gospel, for, for example, and not discriminate against someone else who has a different banner or a different message. Do these rules change at all based on the venue? In other words, is there a, a different set of guidelines that are applicable to a public forum, as you say, such as a government building? We hear of protests in front of courthouses, the federal building, things of this sort, or maybe a public school. Is there any differentiation between one and the other, or is the law largely blind when it comes to what you're protesting in front of? Well, there is, and that's one reason why we produced uh, this uh, special infor- uh, information, uh, public evangelism Q and A, on our website. But to answer your question, like for example, public schools. Let's say someone's demonstrating or, or speaking or preaching outside of a public school on the public sidewalk, the outside public sidewalk. Well, courts have made a distinction that they said that at times if, if if it's during school hours and there's a lot of people and making a lot of noise, so it's a distraction for kids in the classroom, they'll say, hey, you know, that can be prohibited. But if it's after school, the bell rang, kids are leaving, uh, then there's greater protection. We at Pacific Justice have defended people engaging in sidewalk and street evangelism uh, just recently and, uh, and prevailed uh, for their ability to, to do that and pass out gospel tracts or Bibles and the like. Now, if this starts to get big, Counselor, in other words, it's not just you out there with a placard and you want to, you know, share your faith or make a statement. Let's say your entire church decides to get together and you want to make a statement of some sort. Is there any level at which permitting gets triggered, either because of the size of the group or because you wish to use amplification or or pass out literature? Uh, Yes, that's absolutely correct. Uh, the courts have held clearly that if you have one or, or two or three people, one court uh, case is set up to ten people who are going to say, a public park for a purpose to evangelize or to, to speak or preach, it, that you know that's fine. But uh, if you get over over ten, you get a, a real group together, then they, they can start requiring permits beforehand. But even then, uh, the local government can't say, "Well, it's discretionary." No, no, uh, it, it has to. You can't. They can't engage in discrimination it can't be this quote discretionary uh, there has to be clear standards that allow them to uh, per- allow those permits and dealing with reasonable time place and manner restrictions noise restrictions and things like that so there's a lot of protection but if it gets to be a certain group size they do at times often uh, times need to get a permit
We've talked a little bit about the public school environment or venue. Uh, what about for students? And this has run the gambit. We've had these conversations many times down through the years where a teacher will instruct a student to write a story about the person who influenced your life the most. And uh, nine times out of ten, if they happen to pick a historical religious figure, suddenly that's verboten because the teacher thinks that there is somehow a violation of so-called separation of church and state. Uh, or a student who wishes to read a Bible during uh, lunch, say, things of this sort. Walk us through briefly, if you would, what are some of the guidelines, and quite frankly, what are some of the restrictions placed not on individuals but on the government when it comes to attempting to control that kind of free speech in or on a public campus? Yeah, there are so many opportunities, legal rights opportunities, that apply to students' rights to be able to live their faith and evangelize on public school campus during school hours, that we wrote a book called Reclaim Your School. People can download it for free on our website. It's called Reclaim Your School. But uh, to answer your question in a real brief synopsis, I will say uh, when it comes to assignments uh, like a book report, they can't be discriminated against because they chose, for example, Jesus to do a biography on or something like that, or they chose a religious book to read, a, a Bible or something. They also, students uh, can't be prohibited from wearing uh, religious jewelry or a T-shirt that has Jesus loves you on it. As long as they allow other kids to wear uh, shirts with any kind of messaging on it, they can't discriminate against kids. You know, we had a case where a kid was in, uh, a girl in fifth grade was inviting uh, friends to a, 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 a church event with invitation she was passing out. She gave it to two friends, just two friends. She was reprimanded, forced to write an apology level letter several times. It was ridiculous, and we filed a lawsuit, and we won, and uh, and set a real good uh, precedent there. So, uh, even like on a talent show, students can sing Christian songs on talent shows, play that kind of music, not be discriminated against. We've had uh, more than one case dealing with that. So there's a lot of opportunity, especially with Christian clubs and their rights to meet on campus, and even have revival rallies on campus. Uh, we've helped a lot of those take place, and that's really exciting, too, and that's protected also under the Equal Access Act. And there's really a lot more longitude and latitude than folks imagine because there's so much misinformation out there that, quite frankly, is largely perpetrated by administrators that are either trying to be overly protective or just flat-out don't understand what the restrictions are under the law. Oh, absolutely. So there's 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 so much opportunity there. And then What's the one thing unique we have in California and New Jersey, only two states in the country, that actually gives, under state law, state constitution, protections to evangelize in shopping malls. Now, you have reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions you've got to be aware of. But we was a big victory for the Pacific Justice Institute here in the state of California, where a man was being criminally prosecuted because he was caught uh, sharing God with someone in a common area. Hey, but doesn't area. that become a little bit of a gray area in the sense that typically most shopping malls are technically considered private property? So I would imagine that would give more rights to the owners, and yet in a very real sense, it's it's certainly an arena which the general public traverses through quite a lot. So how does that work? Yeah, public shopping malls have become like the public parks. Uh, that's where people go. That's where they gather. They're invited to come in and gather, and and then there's you know plants and things and food and areas eat and shop, shop. So the courts have distinguished the common areas versus the stores themselves. They don't have the right to be in a store and start preaching evangelizing, but they call this sort of a, a quasi uh, public forum, the common area, and that's in California and that's in New Jersey. Other states they say it's private property. 
and some people look at it and say, yeah, that's the way it should be. But for those wanting to evangelize and share their faith, it's important to know the distinction in, with regards to California and New Jersey. And California actually going further to protect that right than, what, 48 of the other states. That's a little bit unusual, isn't it? Yeah, we've seen actually, uh, since our, our victory, we had a shopping mall, that victory that went uh, all the way up on appeal and prevailed. Uh, since then, we have seen, Craig, uh, Pacific Justice Institute uh, ministries really take off and uh, no longer be intimidated, and uh, some really exciting, great stories uh, taking place through some of these um, uh, counseling ministries and some of these uh, evangelism ministries in, in uh, public shopping malls. California leading the way to defend First Amendment rights. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> well, we appreciate the uh, the overall quick uh, review here. And, of course, we've just touched the top of the surface. There's so much more for you to learn. This is information available to you, vital to be aware of, and you can gain access to it by going to the Pacific Justice Institute website. Counselor, where exactly on your website can this be located? Yeah, that's a good question. It's uh, first to go to pacificjustice.org. Pacificjustice.org has the very top. You'll see in a real small print, <laughs> we're replacing our website. It'll say, it, says, it says Get Help. And under Get Help, you go all the way down where it says Books and Brochures. And then you go all the way down that, it has Public Evangelism Q&A. So Get Help, and then go all the way to the bottom of that, and then go to the very, all the way to the bottom of that tab. And uh, you'll, you'll find it. We, we appreciate you putting it in a real easy-to-find spot. <laughs> That's giving you a bad time there. Uh, the information is free, and you can gain access to it again by going to pacificjustice.org. Go to the Get Help tab and just scroll down. You'll, you'll find it in there. Our thanks to a constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, and hopefully still a friend after that wisecrack. <laughs> Thank you, Brad Dacus. Counselor, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights. It is 516. Let's get a look at traffic here. And as we do so, we'll get uh, Mr. Bob Zadek queued up in the wing. He's going to get his take on Helsinki and U.S.-Russian relations so much more. But before we get to that, let's get to traffic. Michael Bennett stands by with the latest for you from the KFAX Traffic Center. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Well, as we welcome you back to the program, you've no doubt been following much of what's been going on, the uh, the aftermath of the meetings in Helsinki, the president spending several days uh, throughout Europe and, of course, winding up his European trip in Helsinki, Finland, and an all-important meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. President, of course, on the backside of a press conference following those talks, has been facing more bipartisan follow-up after the controversial summit. Let's get more information, no pun intended, with Terry Moore. Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan said Russia is no friend of the U.S. Russia is a menacing government that does not share our interests and it does not share our values. Ryan said it's very clear that Russia interfered in the last presidential election. There should be no doubt about that. Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer. The president's behavior has left everyone in the United States scratching their heads. Tennessee Republican Bob Corker, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, accused the president of pushing away American allies and making Putin stronger. On Capitol Hill, I'm Terry Moore, NBC News Radio. 
Now, the president, of course, today tried to walk back some of those remarks, and we'll get to some of those quotes coming up in a moment. But let me welcome into the conversation best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. He is the host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m., The Answer. And, Robert, as always, an honor and a privilege to have you join us. Glad to join you, Craig. But after your first segment, is a little afraid to sign in. Take it easy on me, will you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll go easy on you today. But, you know, tomorrow might be a whole different story. Let me get first your overall take on much of not just the media coverage of the president's meeting with Putin and his time going from England into uh, Helsinki, of course, meetings with uh, Theresa May, the prime minister of England, and uh, some differences between what was said publicly, what was said to the press, what was said behind closed doors, certainly more of that in the meeting with Vladimir Putin. The president today attempting to walk back some of the remarks, much of this seemingly in response to a firestorm of criticism from both sides of the aisle. Your thoughts? I find the commentary, both from the media, from the the elite Washington establishment, to be totally void of any substance, any content, whatever. All we have heard in terms of commentary is sound bites from people who I would have hoped would have uh, offered us more meaningful statements than they did. We start with the principle that what I don't understand is vis-a-vis Russia in general and Putin specifically, what in God's name are we afraid of? Russia is a much smaller country than other Uh, than most of the other countries, well, many of the other countries in the world. They are sort of a superpower by dint of their reputation, but they have an economy that's kind of struggling. And are we afraid of, Craig, are we afraid of a land war? Are we afraid of Russian submarines uh, going steaming up the East River? Are we afraid of Russian tanks rolling across into Germany? Of course we are not. So I start with the premise, take a deep breath, take a step back, and somebody please tell me what exactly we are afraid of. And I, I ask that point, reminding our listeners that how we are basically trading partners with China, China does not have a democratic system of government. They have vestiges of communism, but but they are moving towards capitalism, towards kind of a free market. They are a powerful economic force. They have a strong military presence. Why? What was the declaration? What was the decision that made China a valuable trading partner? and Russia our enemy. If we would just take a step back, and it's like if we declared peace one day, what would happen? If we simply treated Russia the way we treat China by way of example, does anybody think bad things would befall the United States? So I I start with the premise, how did they, what makes them an enemy today, and what are we afraid of? And I think those are very valid questions. I mean, at the end of the day, and you you very, I think, aptly 
put your finger on part of the issue here, that we seem to be continuing in this position of fear over nuclear proliferation and the notion of NATO and, you know, as you say, images of tanks rolling across into uh, the European territories from uh, the east. And, and while that makes for a good soundbite and maybe even a good theme for a movie, the reality is that's not happened. Yes, Russia under its previous intonation of the Soviet Union, had designs on global domination. I think they have largely um, seen most of that. You know, while they still may want it, their ability to to gain that seems to be uh, greatly diminished. And you're right. It's almost as if we have just sort of arbitrarily decided they're our enemy, China's a friend, and yet all of this seems to fly in the face of the fact that China has shown designs on islands in the South China Sea. Certainly, they've been very uh, um, uh, confrontational over the issue of Taiwan. These are ongoing issues, yet we seem to somehow dismiss all of that. We like to talk about Russia and Georgia, Russia and, and the Crimea, but we forget the fact that the one here that really proved to be the greater challenge to U.S. security, certainly economically, if not in terms of a world power, is not Russia, it's China. You know, you mentioned nuclear proliferation. Who was the first country to have nuclear weapons? United States. Who was the first country and the only country to use nuclear weapons? And those countries that saw themselves as our enemy felt it essential, and they were right, that unless they also had nuclear weapons, they were vulnerable. That's exactly why North Korea nuclearized, to invent a phrase, because They saw South Korea as their enemy, and South Korea had quite a strong ally with a lot of nukes, i.e. the United States. So North Korea behaved incredibly rationally. They realized, we got to get nukes, then the United States will talk to us, and then we can relax. So nuclear proliferation is done as much defensively. Does anybody... You know, we're past the days when Khrushchev is going to sit in the U.N., take off his shoe, pound it on the table, that iconoclastic day, and say, we will bury you. Does anybody believe that people in Russia are aspiring to bury the United States? Why, of course not. We are more threatened, of course, or at least more tangibly threatened by terrorism, perhaps, but certainly not by a conventional army or even a nuclear war from Russia. Russia doesn't has given no indication they aspire for that. They may be trying to re reacquire certain land that that was given away or taken from them, but they have no aspirations of having Great Britain become part of Russia or the United States. So what in God's name are we afraid of? Why don't we just start trading with them? And you know, Craig, there's a principle of foreign policy is that nations almost never attack trading partners because they make too much money if they just leave their trading partners alone. Attacking a trading partner is really bad for business. And the more we trade with Russia and with China, and yes, with North Korea, the less likely they are to harm us. The best defense is trade, not arms. 
And, and one of the other balancing factors here that, quite frankly, has been in play going back not years but decades and decades, and the president alluded to this in his remarks yesterday, and that is that 90 percent of the world's nuclear weapons are split almost evenly between the United States and Russia, 90 percent. And under the old um, thought of so-called mad, mutually assured destruction, that seems to always be the equalizing, the balancing power between the two sides. So if we can, for a moment, sort of ratchet down some of the insanity, I know it makes for great sound bites, but to ratchet down some of the insanity in relationship to Russia, nuclear weapons, world domination, and all of this stuff, and then start seriously talking about the issues that are at hand here in terms of trade. And, and I guess maybe getting down to the question of Syria and a few other items, maybe we can actually have some constructive conversation that might lead to some improvements in our relationships. Now, Craig, you know, you had mentioned just a, a quick word. You had mentioned Crimea. Crimea was at one time part of the USSR before it collapsed and Russia resulted. And Crimea was part of the USSR, or larger Russia, from 1783 to 1954, 200 years, almost as long as we have been a country. Then, in, in a, a moment of insanity, Khrushchev gave Crimea to the Ukraine. He just gave it away. So if we have Ukraine or, or Crimea for 200 years being part of Russia, and now we have Putin trying to reestablish pride in Russia and reacquire, if you will, something that a former president of a different country gave away, we kind of see Crimea in a context. Also bear in mind that the Crimea has a very important naval base that Russia is dependent upon and has always had access to. So Russia is behaving kind of rationally and reacquiring Crimea is hardly the first step towards world domination. And we, we are exaggerating the importance of that. And as to Ukraine, where uh, Russia has been meddling, let's remember that the United States meddled in Ukrainian domestic affairs, caused the overthrow of a, of a president in the Ukraine who favored Russia. We participated in the overthrow of that president. So in effect, to cause a government in the Ukraine that was less friendly to Russia. Yes, we meddled in the internal affairs of another sovereign nation. So now we see Putin and Russia's behavior in a context, and I ask our listeners, how would you have behaved if somebody did what happened to Russia, if somebody did that to the United States? Would we behave in the same way, and would we consider ourselves to be rogues on the world stage? Well, and that begs another question that we're just going to lay out for listeners, and then we'll dive into this a little bit deeper when we come back after the break, and that is this, that certainly all of us in looking at the question of Russian meddling in the U.S. election uh, don't like it, don't feel comfortable with it, don't think it ought to happen, uh, agreed on all of those points. But at the same token, there is sometimes an air of superiority here that we look down our noses at Russia and how they dare attempt to do this to us 
when the United States has a history of practically inventing this. Let me give you some countries. Vietnam, Korea, Chile, Argentina, Panama, Nicaragua. Those are the top ones off the top of my head. There are no doubt many more that I've forgotten about. All nations in which we have not only actively, but aggressively attempted to sway the outcomes of elections. So while, again, I'm not saying election meddling is good, and I certainly don't want to see the ability of an outside concern, an outside nation, to be able to influence the outcome of our own elections, let's not be too hasty in laying all of the judgment at the feet of Russia in failing to recognize we, too, have a history of going down that very same road. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. Best-selling author, syndicated radio talk show host Bob Zadek is with us tonight. By the way, Bob's latest book, Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy, is available through Bob's website. You can check out podcasts, more information about current shows, as well as where you can listen to the program by going to bobzadek.com. That's Bob Zadek, Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. All right, 535, let's get caught up on traffic for you here. You head home on this Tuesday. Let's hope the commute this afternoon is better than it was this morning, particularly on the peninsula with that big rig overturn that blocked traffic for eight painful hours. Latest now for you from the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the perhaps more unfortunate outcomes of the meeting with President Putin yesterday was everything seemingly by the national press distilled down to this one moment. People came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be, but I really do want to see the server. The probe is a disaster for our country. It's kept us separated. There was no collusion at all. Now, several things in that statement at play. The president, of course, today saying, no, we didn't mean to say that he didn't see why it would be Russia, but rather meant to say why it wouldn't be Russia. That seemingly, in my estimation, is a bit at odds, given the fact that there was no other denial. He didn't attempt to correct himself at the time and seemed to almost underscore that take. And I'm wondering... Bob Zadek, if maybe part of the problem here is that that I, I think maybe the president, in my estimation, is having a difficult time differentiating between several different items at play here. Number one is the Mueller probe into whether or not there was collusion between the Russian government and the Trump administration or then the Trump candidacy. That's number one. Secondarily, research into Russian proliferation into the DNC servers and access to Podesta's email, Hillary Clinton's email, disseminating that information through WikiLeaks, et cetera, et cetera. And then thirdly, the Russian attempt to try and influence the outcome of the election through allegedly placing uh, advertisements and engaging in social media, things of this sort. To me, it seems like three different aspects, and I almost wonder if the president is trying to be dismissive here of everything simply because he's not differentiating between the three and is maybe concerned that a cloud hangs over the legitimacy of his presidency, that he doesn't want his presidency to have an asterisk Next to it, what do you think? 
Well, Craig, I have, and I've announced on my show, I have a Trump survival secret. And my Trump survival secret is ignore every single syllable that he says, pay attention to every single act that he performs. And on that te- on the first test of listening to what he says, I go apoplectic. I can't stand it. I go on mute on the, he's on the television. I can't do it. On the other hand, if I just look at what he's done, then I find even though it would be very I'd be very hard pressed to vote for him right now, despite that, as I just look at what he has done, I say to myself a couple of things. Number one, a lot of what he's done makes me really, really happy. And I'll be elaborate I'll elaborate if you wish. A lot of what he does I don't like. But okay, but I'll focus on what he's done that I like. As to that, not only do I like it, but I say I don't think any other president would have given me so many gifts. And the reason is Trump doesn't care about principles or politics. He doesn't care. He just listens to whatever advice he gets. He ignores a lot of his advice. But the end result of this bizarre decision-making process is he does important acts that no other president, in my view, would have ever done. So it's a gift that keeps on giving, despite the profound disappointments on areas of trade and immigration, profound disappointments. But he has given so much good stuff to me and others like me, that I just ignore what he says and look at what he does, and I wake up every morning feeling pretty gosh darn content. Is it in your opinion at all, Bob, that it's disingenuous perhaps for the media, for uh, those on the Democrat side of the aisle, et cetera, et cetera, to be so hypercritical when he doesn't perform in a, shall we say, politician-like manner? I was going to use statesman, but we really haven't seen statesman, in my opinion, uh, in the White House in a number of years. But that said, that we, we, we as the country intentionally went out and selected somebody who was the anti-politician. And so then when they say, well, he's not acting very politically correct, it's almost as if we're shocked over this when we're failing then, in my opinion, to recognize who it is that the nation voted for in the first place. You know, Thomas Jefferson, when he became president, and he was the first president to really occupy the White House, when he had visitors, he opened the door himself wearing a bathrobe and slippers hmm. and he and he he sat and talked to them he reduced he got rid of some of the pomp that George Washington instilled in the presidency only a bit but i america seems to have this craving this craving for a lot of what accompanies the pomp that accompanies having a king. America craves a king. We have given our president today more power than any monarch on earth ever fantasized about having. Our president has infinitely more power than King George has when we declared our independence. We have a president with more power than King George. And to the fact that Trump has... uh, 
cheapened, if you will, reduced the pomp of the presidency. It's not, while I don't like his behavior, it's not all that bad. I cringe when our president walks down red carpeting with hail to the chief in the background and all this pomp. I cringe. I cringe at all the attributes of royalty we give to the president. It's a hired politician doing a job. He's not royalty. And to the extent that Trump, in his boorish way, reduces that, in a bizarre way, I'm kind of happy about it. In some ways, it kind of does kind of, uh, how should we say, deflates a bit of this pomp and circumstance that, quite frankly, in, in my estimation, the Founding Fathers never wanted us really to be associated with in the first place. I mean, if, if that had been the case, we could have established our own monarchy here. You bet. Almost did, except George Washington declined the job. Now, Craig, before the break, you mentioned the Russian meddling in our election. Yes. And I want I would like to discuss that. I, I find myself disagreeing with you a tiny, tiny bit. And that's a headline because you and I almost never disagree. But I disagree in this regard. What exactly, let's assume Russia did exactly what we think they did. What did they do? They spent about $70 million. They created a lot of fake news on Facebook and other places. They hacked in, they broke the law, they hacked into the Democratic computers, and they released factual uh, transcripts of what the Democratic bigwigs were doing. Now, my question to you, Craig, first of all, we feel some politicians in the Congress have said it's an act of war. If we feel, now, we spent in our presidential campaign Two billion dollars, one billion dollars per candidate. That's billion with a B. If Russia, by spending 70 million dollars, represents a threat to our democracy, we got to pack it away. We got to pack it in. We're done. If 70 million dollars in Facebook ads can bring down our nation, we should just stop being a nation right now. It's utterly absurd. What they did was so insignificant so as not to merit any attention. Not only that, Craig, I'm sorry, I hit the microphone. Not only that, but Craig, let us assume that Russia released through the media, through social media, true statements, assuming everything they told us was true, and assuming they did it with the sole motive of getting Donald Trump elected. Did they perform a service to us? by telling us stuff we didn't know? Or did they perform an act of war? Isn't anybody who gives us more truthful information helping us decide? Isn't that strengthening our democracy, not weakening it? And if what do Russia's motives matter? There are a lot of people who hit fake news with bad motives. We don't question their motives. They're allowed to do it. So why does the motives of Russia in spending $70 million a mere pittance, why does that get so much attention? It's insignificant. Well, and, and we may not necessarily be that far apart on this point, because I have said since the get-go, when it was first made public, that the DNC servers, that Hillary Clinton servers, that John Podesta's email had been hacked, and that all of the content of those emails had been made public through WikiLeaks, and, and the irony from the 
the very beginning is there was never denial of the legitimacy of the content of the emails, just outrage over the fact that they went public, which sounds an awful lot like, I'm not sorry that I committed the crime, I'm just sorry that I got caught. And there is also another angle here, and I alluded to this prior to the break, and that is this sense of, of the duplicitness of our righteous indignation as a country that we are just shocked and horrified that Russia tried to influence the outcome of the election in what they perceive to be their favor, although the evidence of that panning out is, you know, yet to be uh, made public. But nevertheless, this sense of righteous indignation that Russia would dare do this when the United States has had a long history of meddling in the outcome of elections going back to, quite frankly, post-World War II. Going back to Cuba, going back to the uh, Iran, we instilled the Shah, a dictator in Iran. We messed with the Libyan government. And don't forget Korea. We discussed Korea in the past. In After World War II, we took a Korean peninsula, we drew a line on a map, and we gave North Korea to Joe Stalin. Here, Joe, here's North Korea. Have a nice rest of your life. That's not meddling. What about the North Koreans? Don't they get a say? We gave them away to to make Joe Stalin happy. And to for us to be so painfully hypocritical, so painfully hypocritical, it 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 hurts me to the core. We we are not honorable when we establish one standard of behavior for the rest of the world and another somehow for us. Point well taken. Bob, stay with us for a moment, because I want to get your take on a bit of the the Mueller investigation, uh, where that is progressing along, the indictment of 12 Russians, and and whether or not this is going to come to a a rapid, eventual conclusion, or is this going to continue to linger on and dog this presidency for the balance of the next uh, two years and six months and change. Bob Zadex with us, nationally syndicated talk show host. We invite you to tune in, catch his program, it's engaging. He has a lot of very interesting news-making, newsworthy guests that offer insights into the day's events and, most importantly, do it all from a unique perspective of American individualism and the uniqueness of our country, our constitutional republic, and protecting basic human rights and, quite frankly, keeping the government out of our day-to-day business as much as possible. Check out the Bob Zadek Show Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Details, by the way, about Bob's most recent book, Secret Sauce, the Founder's Original Recipe for Limited American Democracy, available on Bob's website, along with other resources and podcasts, too, by going to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take this time out back with some closing thoughts from Bob Zadek. As Lifeline continues, and continue we shall, yes, indeed. But first, but first, as they say in show business, oh my goodness! And you, you weren't watching. You should have been paying closer attention. Hope that wasn't you. Let's see what's going on traffic-wise. Michael Bennett's got the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I think we can very easily and reasonably conclude that no president likes to have an investigation 
somehow casting a cloud over their presidency. Nixon, I'm sure, wanted Watergate to go away as much as Clinton wanted Whitewater to go away. And certainly, as we've heard expressed many times by President Trump, he'd just like to see Robert Mueller go away. That's probably not going to happen any soon, but I'd like to get Bob Zadek's thoughts and insights on is there as much to do about this as some suggest there is. I talked earlier about the notion that seems to be sort of three really different issues at play here. I would imagine, Bob, if there was in fact solid evidence lurking somewhere of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians, that if, if indeed that were a fait accompli, that it already would have come to the forefront. We've seen an indictment handed down against 12 Russians allegedly involved in trying to, again, manipulate the outcome of the election. How long do you see this thing continuing, practically speaking? And do you think there's a shoe waiting to be dropped at some point here? It's such wild speculation because I am, by definition, an an outsider. I know nothing about what's going on. I even don't follow the investigation because it's just an event that goes on behind closed doors. It gets a lot of media attention. Um, I can't tell how much I care other than the fact that if it is interfering with the function of the office of the president, then to that extent, it's harmful to our country. If it is going to produce serious crimes that must be looked at now and cannot wait, and time is of the essence, then of course it's important. We don't want a criminal in the White House. Uh, And when you mentioned other prior investigations, you mentioned Clinton and and Whitewater, and you mentioned Nixon, and of course we also have to include, uh, may rest in peace, uh, former President Ronald Reagan, who had to suffer through Iran-Contra. Of course. And he had his own problems with an investigation. And if we look back at those investigations, I guess we'll conclude Whitewater turned out to be pretty much of a waste of money. The Clinton investigation, I'm sorry, the Nixon investigation was important. Uh, President Nixon was clearly committed criminal acts and shouldn't, as it turned out, shouldn't have been left in office. And as to what will be the end result of Mueller's investigation, impossible to say. I'll just mention one thing without diminishing the importance of the indictments, without diminishing that. I have on my show discussed on more than one occasion the fact that we have so many federal statutes. We have countless, countless criminal parts of federal criminal law. And uh, there was a book written called Three Felonies a Day by Harvey Slivergate, an early guest on my show. And Slivergate pointed out that the average American commits three federal felonies 
every single day without knowing about it. So the fact is we have such tripwire federal law. Remember Paul Manafort, who I have no idea what, the, what he did, whether he's a bad guy or a good guy. He was indicted for tax events that happened in 2004, 2003, something like that. So uh, part of me, without diminishing the significance of the indictments, wonder whether or not Mueller could have indicted the entire Washington establishment for one reason or another if he chose to do so. Well, I think so there's, I the problem, there's, there's the problem. There's the part of this that makes it so frustrating at a level, because if this investigation is continuing on and they're continuing to investigate because they found something, all right, maybe there's some legitimacy to that. But there seems to be certain levels at which the sense is almost not that they're looking because they found something, but they're looking because they hope to find something. And, and listen, Bob, you and I both know uh, the, the, the moral equivalency of that is, listen, if they probe deep enough, I know they're going to find a unpaid parking ticket with my name on it from 1975 and, 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 uh, and maybe the same thing for you, too. So do we both do jail time for that? <laughs> You know, if you're a hammer, everything in the world looks like a nail. Uh, yes. If you're a, if you're an investigator, if you're hired to indict people, you're going to do your job. You're going to do what you put on this earth to do. So I have a very, very profound wait-and-see attitude, making no judgment whatever until uh, the fat lady sings as to whether this is a monumental distraction, harmful to our country, and a profound waste of money, or whether it's actually fixing something that's very, very broken. I have no opinion on it. Uh, I don't pay that much attention because I'll pay attention when it's over and then I can look back and decide. Well, and you know what? At the end of the day, that might be sound advice for all of us because it's easy to get caught up in the minutia of this hearing and that committee discussion and so forth. And and uh, C-SPAN lately has been rich with high drama and certainly high on the drama, but I don't know if it's as rich on the substance as one would hope for. So perhaps the wait and see, make the judgment once all of the facts are available. At this point, it's just pure speculation at multiple levels in multiple directions. More great insights from Bob Zadek Sunday morning at 8 o'clock on his show. And, of course, he is syndicated. You can get information about his show, resources, his latest book, and podcast, too, by going to bobzadek.com. That's Bob Zadek, Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. Bob, is always a uh, privilege and great insights that you share. We appreciate so much carving some time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Six o'clock from KFAX. That means time for a look at traffic, and we do so by swinging over to the KFAX Traffic Center and talking with our good buddy, Michael Bennett. Michael, tell us what's going on. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.